series through various selections here in the Psalter, the inspired hymn book, inspired prayer book, a book of instruction, a book that teaches us about our Savior. Psalm 95, I'll read the entirety of the psalm. It's 11 verses. Let's give attention to it. This is God's word. It's not the words of men. Let's heed it with diligence even this morning. Psalm 95, beginning with verse 1. There we read, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Amen. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's pause and ask for his help as we always do. As we consider this portion of his word even together in the preaching of it this morning, let's pray. Our God in heaven, again, once again, we come humbly to ask that you would give to us what you have promised us. You have, at, you have told us, and we believe, that when we ask for your spirit to teach us and guide us in all truth, that you are pleased to give him. And who are we to understand even the very simplest truths of your word without the spirit's help, the one who penned it? And so may you grant that help to us now that we might look and behold wonderful things from this, your word, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. It was John R.W. Stott, who, uh, who was the former rector of All Saints Church in London, who wrote on the subject of worship, he wrote the following. He said, true worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man, by the grace of God, is capable True worship, he said, is the highest and noblest activity of which man, by the grace of God, is capable. John Stott's observation is true. It is true as it relates to that which is the most important thing that you and I will do every single week. To heed the words of the psalm, to call, be called into the very presence of God, to come where he is, to meet with him as he meets with us, to hear from him as his word is publicly read and proclaimed. When we gather in that way, when we gather publicly to worship, we come to do so, uh, to give adoration, to give worth which is the etymology of the term worship, to give worth, that not know, knowing that he has no need of it, but we come to give it nonetheless to the one living and true God. And as we do, he doesn't benefit. We do. We are the beneficiaries of this one day in seven in which God has called us apart from the world that we might gather publicly with the people of God, our brothers and sisters, that we might sing his praise, that we might hear from him, that we might pray to him, that we might worship and honor the one true God of heaven and earth. But so few, it seems, take advantage of this. So few see this hour, this time, this moment, right now, what you're doing today as the most important thing you'll do all week. Oh, sure, it's true that other things that we do during the week are important. They're vital. Your job, tending to your family, paying your bills, having time of recreation. But this day, 
in this hour surpasses them all. It is here that we get the privilege of coming as the people of God to publicly give worship to him, the God of heaven. And we should be able to, as redeemed people, especially as the redeemed of the Lord, we should be able to give a hearty amen to the fact that true public and corporate worship is indeed the highest and most noblest of all activities of our week. And if it's not your view, then you need to repent. The word of God is plain. It could not be more plain that we have been made to worship the God of heaven. That is our sole purpose for being here. It is why we were made. Sin wrecked all that and caused the problems that we see today. It's caused the difficulty in public worship in which we come, not always feeling like we want to be here. It's caused the difficulty in the reality that we don't set it as the highest priority of our week. But nonetheless, it is still true. It is indeed the most important thing you will do this week. It's so important that we should frame our entire week around this day. That is how the calendar was erected and established for the people of old, the church of old in the Old Testament. It should be the way we establish the calendar of our week each week as we recognize the fact that the Lord's Day is coming. After all, it's not just the pastor who has to worry about the fact that the Lord's Day coming, even if there's a holiday in the middle of the week. All of you, too, should be mindful and recognize and order your week around the very activity that you are now doing. Let me ask you just plainly, brothers and sisters, is this the highlight of your week? Maybe it's the football game that you shouldn't watch this afternoon. Maybe it was Thanksgiving. That was the highlight of your week this week. And next week it'll be a birthday of somebody else. And the week after that it'll be someone's anniversary. And the week after that it'll be some trip you're going to take. All of those are good things. This surpasses them all. Because here you come uh, not, not to worship yourselves, and, but, but to adore he who made all of it possible, to recognize his work of redemption, to understand that which he's going to do to shepherd and guide you through the preaching of his word. All of it you see and understand. It should be indeed the very highlight of your week. But too often many come to worship with very wrong ideas. Perhaps they come, and maybe this is you. You come with the idea that says, well, you know, if I show up, Pastor Bill won't call me this afternoon and ask me where I was. I do that out of concern for you, by the way, not because I'm just checking up on you because I want to be annoying. I have other ways of being annoying. That's not one of them. Maybe you come because you, you, you look to see what you might get out of it. How many times have I heard that from people? I didn't get anything out of that service. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize it was about you. Maybe you have different ideas of how we should worship. Maybe you think we should do it differently. Maybe we should use different music, different readings. Maybe we shouldn't read so much of the Bible. Maybe we should read more of the Bible. Maybe he shouldn't preach so long. We don't order our worship services according to man's opinion. We order it according to the opinions of God who is to be worshipped. Now, you confessed that a few minutes ago in the reading of the Confession of Faith, chapter 21, which highlights the very principle by which we do what we do in worship. Maybe you come because you'd really want to be here. You delight in it, you've ordered it as a priority of your week, you see the benefit of it, you can't wait to get here, you look forward to it with great anticipation. But you're here and you're still trying to figure it out. What are we doing? And why? Why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we preach? Why does he preach so long? Why does he preach so short? Depends on who you are to ask, by the way. I gotta tell you, I know people in this room they think I preach too long, and I got other people who think I preach too short. I never know which one it's supposed to be. Maybe you just honestly don't understand all of it. This psalm is designed to help you with it. 
You see, the psalm is not merely a call to worship, although it is. Indeed, it's used historically as a call to worship. I have used it numerous times to call you to worship. It is that indeed, but it is more than that. It is both a call and it's an instruction, a psalm of instruction on the very subject of worship. For which we should be, of course, quite thankful because if worship is everything that I've said it is, and it is, if it's that important and ordered by God, and it is, then God didn't leave it up to you to figure out how to do it. You are sinners. I'm a sinner. I'm going to come up with all kinds of crazy ideas, and I can show you churches after churches in our country that have them. No, he's told us. If you want to worship me, this is how you're going to do it. He didn't leave it up to the children of Israel to build the tabernacle any way they wanted. He told them exactly how to do it, that they might worship him rightly. And he's told us too. He has graciously given us not only this psalm, but plenty of other places in his word that instruct us on what is indeed the most important thing you will do every Lord's Day, every week. And so I'm going to show you in this psalm, I'm going to show you that this psalm is indeed teaching you the specifics, means, and reasons for the worship of the living and true God. I want to show you that this psalm is in fact teaching you the specifics, means, and reasons for the worship of your God. Three points as we consider the entirety of the psalm. The specifics of worship, the means of worship, and the reasons for worship. The specifics, the means, and the reasons for the worship of the living and true God. Let's first consider the specifics. The setting, as I've already mentioned, is one of a call to worship. There's no question that this is a corporate expression of worship. But as often is said in our uh, our day and age, usually by people who don't want to come to church on the Lord's Day, is that all of life is supposed to be a life of worship. There's no difference. Oh, yes, there is, but you're right, it is true. All of life is supposed to be a life of worship. That is not a wrong statement. It is certainly true that you and I are to live in our entire lives, Coram Deo, the Latin, before the face of God. We are to live our lives in the frame of worship before God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we are to live our lives as holy sacrifices before him. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, paints this for us, that all that we do is to be done to the glory of God. The tagline of our church his glory and our, all of it, our whole life is done for him. We express that, don't we, in times of personal devotions. You are reading your Bible, right? We do that in times of personal prayer. You're doing that too, right? We do this in times of family worships. Dads? But even those, as important as they are, fail in comparison to what you're doing right now. As important as they are, and do not hear me say from this pulpit that I'm telling you not to read your Bible. I'm not telling you not to pray. I'm, te- I, I'm not telling you not to do faith. I'm not telling you to, do, to stop doing any of those things. I'm telling you that those things are foundational. Those things are helpful to lead you and guide you and direct your family to that which you're doing right now, this act that you do on a day of worship, which is what this psalm highlights. More important than those times that have been mentioned already, and as important as they are, is this one day in seven that God has established and set apart for his worship. Now, man didn't do that. God did. He did it in creation week. He did it in the very first week of this earth in his universe in which he made man on the sixth day that they might worship him on the seventh. And by virtue of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the example of the apostles in the New Testament, we now worship on the first day of the week. That is to say the eighth day, which is the day that pictures life and newness of life in Christ. 
a unique day, a day unlike any others that the world has ever known. How do we know that this this particular psalm is corporate in its expression? Well, again, as I've told you before in the past, we must take heed of the pronouns that are even given here in this psalm. The word you in its plural expression is used six times. The word us, our, is used so many times throughout the entirety of the psalm that there is no way a reasonable reading of the psalm can come away with one conclu- other than one conclusion. That the minister, the priest, whoever it is here in Psalm 95 is calling the corporate body of believers to gather to worship him. Thus the focus of the worship. It's there, given to us, there in the opening line of the psalm, O come, let us sing to the Lord. The focus of your worship each Lord's Day must be Him. It's not a man. It's not me. I'm on vacation this week. I won't be in this pulpit next week. That doesn't mean you stay home. That's pastor worship, which is idolatry. Don't do that. And by the way, if I find out about it, I will say something. We ought not do that. You don't come here to worship a pastor or an elder or a deacon or your friends. You come here to worship the living God. It's the only reason you're here. This is why you're here. He is our focus. This is where modern worship often loses its way and sometimes very badly. As they invent various ways in which to approach the God of heaven, instead of simply following the simple instructions of this subject given to us in the scriptures, they invent all sorts of creative ways to worship God. Now, I've seen many of them. Maybe you have too. Puppet shows, kids dancing around the room. They give them really cool names too, like liturgical dance. It's supposed to make it sound more spiritual, I guess. Hosts of other acts of silliness go on, even so much so that I saw one time a baptism performed by the use of water slides. None of these things are done in accordance with what God has commanded, and if he is the one who deserves and calls for the worship of his people, he is going to tell sinners how to do that. Our object of worship is the triune God. He is the focus, and I'm sorry to break this to you. Brothers and sisters, you're not it. I know we like to think we're all that important, and you are. You're important. You're important to me, but you're not more important than God to me or his son or the spirit. Our focus is him, always him. And too many people come to church on the Lord's Day with the wrong folks, and as a result are often left with nothing. Nothing. The psalmist says that we come to worship the rock of our salvation. He does so through invitation, through a call. The psalm is used as that very thing, a call uh, to worship, because the emphasis is placed there. It is a public call to the people of God to come and enjoy his presence and praise and worship him. And as it's inspired by the Spirit, it rings as very important to the life of the church. We do not take this lightly. This is not merely the beginning of worship. I asked an elder one time, not here, before anybody jumps to any crazy conclusions, in a different call, why we have a benediction. What does it mean? And his answer, it's the end of the service. It's a holy period placed at the end. Wrong. Just like the call to worship isn't, a holy beginning. It is at the beginning. But it's an invitation of a holy God to you, sinful people, all of you, 
to come and enjoy his presence. The holiest of holies you are invited into. By virtue of another, by the virtue of Christ, you get to come and enjoy him in a unique way as his people here in this place. He invites us. Not because he needs you to come and worship him. God determined never to create. He would still be as holy as he is right now. If God determined never to make man, he'd still be all glorious. Nothing would have changed. You don't make him more glorious by coming here on the Lord's day. He is all glorious regardless whether you show up or don't show up. He didn't need your worship. You do. You need it. He knew that. He understands that. That's why he calls you to do it. But he doesn't just invite, he commands it. In fact, the original rendering of this call to worship is in the imperative mood in the Hebrew. It's not a request. Well, show up if you want. Don't worry about it if you don't. It's all good. Everything is all equal. No, it's a command of the Lord to you as people to come and benefit from the very presence of the triune God. Scripture elsewhere gives credence to this very truth and the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10 when he warns people not to forsake themselves, the gathering together. This call of worship and the act of worship is important not only because it is commanded and then thus requiring the redeemed of the Lord to be obedient to that call, but it is vital to spiritual growth. Now, I have witnessed it more than once when professing Christians fail to see and then act on public worship. Worship, apostasy itself, is right around the corner. Barring the providence of God and circumstance beyond the worshiper's capability, if you refuse, if you will not come and heed the call of the God of heaven who made you and knows you, brothers and sisters, be warned. Apostasy is lurking in the shadows, waiting to pounce. I've seen it over and over again in the lives of professing Christians. Next thing you know, they're off doing who knows what, denying the Lord that bought them. It's a pity, it's a tragedy. Do not forsake this command. To come and gather and worship. That's why it's so vitally important, brothers and sisters, that you frame your entire week around the Lord's Day. Some of you need to evaluate how you spend Saturday evenings. I've got to tell you, there's no way you can worship God rightly if you're up till 2 o'clock in the morning. And come in this place at 9.30 in the morning and expect that you're going to give God the best of your life. I suppose it's possible, maybe, but I can't imagine it. More on that in a minute. I know you can't wait. And so the psalmist here, he highlights for us the setting. He highlights for us the importance, the invitation. And then he gives to us the attitude. The attitude of worship. I've said this before, and I'll say it again many times. This is not a funeral. We come in joyful reverence of the God of heaven. Joyful. It just happens to be one of the things that is mentioned by the psalmist there in verse 2. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Three attitudes are mentioned in the psalm that should accompany our worship each Lord's Day. As we enter into this place, as we come before the God of heaven, it should be a checkpoint and used that way as you enter. If they are present, you should rejoice. Be thankful that God was gracious to you today to give you attitudes of joy and thanksgiving and praise on your lips and heart for what he has done. If they're absent, then you need to repent. You need to cry out to God for more help. 
Give me what you command me. I hate this feeling. I feel like I'm pulling teeth. I've mentioned that to my wife from time to time, that sometimes I think I'm preaching. I feel like I'm pulling teeth all the way through the sermon, not your teeth, my own. An attitude of worship. First, joy. There should be a sense of joy when the people of God are called to publicly worship him. Is that how you come here every Lord's Day? Well, I, Pastor, I want to. Pray for it then. God, give me what you command me. You've told me to come with joy. Well, I want to, but I feel kind of miserable today. I understand that we're emotional creatures. Contrary to public opinion, I am too. I'm not a robot. I have emotions. I wrestle with them like you wrestle with yours. But we must rule them, and you must rule them. We must rule them with that which we know God has commanded us. As we consider even the background of the forms of public worship, the background of this public worship was the tabernacle. Now, I've got to tell you something. Knowing a little bit about the story of the building of the tabernacle and its construction and all the details and then everything that happens afterwards and all the gore and mess and smell and everything that happened in the worship of God in those days, I'm very thankful to be living on this side of the cross. Which is to say I should have more joy, not less. And the point being is that the call to worship and the imperative of worship in this psalm was reflective. It stood, as it were, in the shadow of the tabernacle or the temple, depending on when it was penned. And all of that's going on. And God says, come into my presence with joy. Now, joy is not happiness, by the way. They're not the same thing. Your happiness goes up and down depending on the weather or your friends or lack of friends. Joy is an abiding quality, an abiding attitude. It is rooted in what we know is true. And we are told by the God of heaven who knows us, we are told to come with joy by the one who knows our frame. He knows what you need. And we come with joy not only for what He knows we need, but because of what he does and has done. And how is it expressed? Well, the psalm tells us songs of praise and word singing. Right about here is a good time for a pastor joke. You know, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Some of your noises and all that, never mind. Don't worry about how well you sound in the room. Some of you sound better than others. Who cares? God looks at the heart. Doesn't mean you try to improve that. Are you singing out of joy for what the Lord has done for you? Are you singing out of joy for the fact that he redeemed you and didn't leave you in this miserable state of sin? Are you rejoicing for the way he's blessed you this week? Are you rejoicing for... You've got plenty of reasons to be joyful. You express it in song. Well, I don't like that music. That's, you know what? That's an old argument that doesn't work. Look at the words. Meditate upon them. Sing them with delight. Reflect upon the one who has given you this joy, this abiding quality through the work of Jesus. It is in him, then, that we root this attitude. I know what I'm asking you, never mind me, what God here commands you may seem just over the top. Maybe in some Lord's days it's just beyond reach. You've spent all of your energy trying to get the kids in the car, maybe dressed and in the car, maybe both, I don't know. You come here flat out exhausted. All you want to do is collapse in the chair. Look, I get that. You know, I used to sit out there. Sometimes I wish I was sitting out there. I understand all this. I wrestle with my own emotions on the Lord's Day. Well, you get to preach. It's easier for you to be joyful. Really? Ask my wife when she asked me, how's the sermon coming? I said, well, it's not going to make me any friends this week. 
Doesn't sound like joy. No, it's hard. It's a, it's a battle. I get it. I understand. But it doesn't change the target. You have to work at it. You have to root it in your weak to be diligent and pursue this. Sometimes all you can say, I get it. Sometimes all you can say is, Lord, I'm coming to worship you. You, you. I know I'm not in the best of moods, but I have, come to, I have come to have your will bend mine that I might worship you with joy. Sometimes that's all you've got. But you know what? That's better than most people who sit there oblivious to everything that's being done and said during worship and then leave, and as they get in the car, they say, boy, I'm glad that's over. Second, not only an attitude of joy, but an attitude of thanksgiving. The immediate context is one of thanksgiving to God for his many blessings, especially the blessing of redeeming us and calling us to worship him. Let us come, he says, into his presence with thanksgiving. And third, we come with an attitude of reverence and humility. God is not your buddy. What? I know. The modern church, that's cool to say. Not here. He's not your peer, he's your friend. He's your father. He is the thrice holy God of heaven and earth, the creator. It's no accident that the psalmist appeals to his creative work here and shows forth that he is a great God above all gods. And it's no surprise, then, therefore, that the psalmist in, there in verse 6 would call us once again to worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our buddy, no, our maker. We come into his presence with joyful reverence, with awe of his majesty and his beauty in ways we, 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 we can't even possibly fathom, frankly. Too much of what passes for worship today lacks the reverence and awe that should accompany public worship. Too much frivolity, too much goofiness, too much silliness. Frankly, I've seen some football games more serious than some worship services. This is the living God who made all things, who holds your life in his hand, who's rescued and redeemed you, who's invited you to be where he is, who is the thrice holy God of heaven, who commanded Moses to remove the sandals from his feet because the ground in which he's standing is holy. Many years ago, one of my children asked me, about my obsession on this point, which isn't really my obsession. And I just challenged her by saying, you show me one place in the Bible where men, sinners, came face to face with a holy God and didn't act in awe and reverence. And when they didn't, what was the response? I can think of two guys, the sons of Aaron, who trifled with the worship of God, who treated it with, with carelessness, who waltzed their way into the holy place, got awfully close to the veil, probably, offered strange fire before the Lord and didn't get out of there with their life. Frankly, it's a good thing God doesn't do all that today. I wonder how many people would never make it home. We must take this seriously, for it is serious business. We are dealing with the most holy one of Israel, a joyful reverence. But what are the means? Very quickly. Well, first, and I've mentioned this already, 
really, I've categorized the means to come and heed this call and worship God under three categories. Before, I know those are novel. I don't have much of an imagination. Before, during, and you can all guess the third. After. Before. Heeding the call to worship the triune God is not a light duty. As such, it must be something that you prepare to do. Now, some of you spend more time and energy making reservations for an anniversary dinner than you do coming here to meet with the God of heaven. Now, I think that's kind of backwards. By all means, take all the care that dads, husbands, take your wife out the whole nine yards. Call the restaurant, make the reservation, do what you got to do. Put that same energy into this. Prepare. The Lord's Day's coming. Save the Lord's return. Next Lord's Day is going to be here in seven days. Prepare ahead. Start on Saturday evening. These are all pastoral counsel. Start on Saturday evening. Read the sermon text. Read it as a family. I don't know. Maybe use the worship preparation guide that somebody sends you every week. It's a means. It's not infallible. Sit down as a family. Fathers, the impetus is on you. And sorry, it's the deal. God has given you that responsibility. Sit down as a family. Read and discuss the sermon to be preached. Go over the hymns and Psalter selections, and that'll help alleviate the tired comment that I don't know the music. We live in the internet era. They're all out there. Not to mention the fact that the Trinity Psalter hymnal even has an app. So go over the hymns. If you can't sing like me, read the words. I don't choose them haphazardly, you know. They're designed to help you worship God. They're a means. Get plenty of rest the day before. A tired worshiper is not usually very joyful. On the Lord's Day morning, pray as a family for the worship service. Pray for those who will lead you in worship. Pray for the pastor and the sermon. I would covet that especially as I'm fighting off illness that's been in my home. Pray. Prepare beforehand. During. The psalm does not catalog all the various elements that comprise a public worship service, but it does highlight three. Singing, prayer, and the reading and preaching of God's word. Now you might think, where's that? Wait a minute. Pastor's gone off the rails again. It's there. I'll show it to you in a minute. Singing, verses 1 and 2. We sing, why? Out of gratitude for what God has done for us. You are to make a joyful noise. Singing should be an expression of a heart's attitude to God for what he has done. Some of you sit there and don't even open your mouth. And then you say, well, I don't, I don't sing very well. That's an excuse. It's not a reason. Sing. Hey, none of you sound like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I know, I stand up here, I can hear you. Including me. Who cares? God hasn't heard a perfect song from a creature yet. Not even the angels. Sing to him for all that he has done with gratitude. And by the way, yelling is not singing. Sing. There's a difference. Sing. Prayer. Though it is likely, of course, in verse 6, that the psalmist has idea of the whole concept of reverence and humility before the God of heaven, prayer certainly is an expression of those things. If you haven't noticed in our worship service, there's lots of prayer. Man, we could be done in an hour, not an hour and a half. There's five prayers in our worship service. Why? 
because it's an expression of humility, but it's not magic. We pray to the God of heaven that he might change our hearts and warm them to him and bend them around his will as an expression of our recognition that we are dependent upon him, not the other way around. And what better place to pray to the God of heaven than in this place, on this hour, in his worship, with his people that he loves? And then third, of course, is the preaching of God's word. This is highlighted, as I promised, it's highlighted in verses 7 through 11. It actually comprises the bulk of the entire psalm, which lends itself to the argument that preaching is pretty important in the worship of God. It was the final words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. He could have said anything. He could have given Timothy medical advice. He could have told him some other thing, but instead he tells them to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching because there's going to come a time when people will accumulate to themselves teachers who will tickle their ear and make them feel good about themselves. You don't think we live in that world today? It was happening then, it's happening now, what's happening in between, there's nothing new under the sun. Preaching. Here at Providence, as you know, this is the center of our worship as far as the activity that we do. We preach that we might heed and hear, hear and heed the God of heaven. And it is an act of worship, not only from me, but to you, in the sense that you are to actively hear what is being said. Is that not what he tells the people in this classic call to worship? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't turn aside. Don't pretend like this doesn't matter. It's a life and death issue. Why is it a life and death issue? Because those people did not listen. They did not heed. And they were lost for eternity. They didn't enter his rest. And so we come to hear from him. And after, of course, while worship does not end at the benediction, carries over into the week. It should frame all that we do. It should prepare us then again to come once again to hear the call to worship and to worship the God of heaven. It should spur us on to obey and to do all that we have done and heard in his worship. It should move the people of God to honor him not only on the Lord's day but every day, all the time. So why? The psalmist tells us the reasons. He first highlights the very character of God. In verses 3 through 5, he points to the fact that he is the creator. He plucks right out of creation week an example. He could have picked any one of them. Picks the seas and all that. That's the one he chose to highlight he as creator. I don't know, maybe it's because you've never made a sea or a mountain. I mean, you procreate, children come from you. I don't know why the psalmist chose this particular day. But what we do know is that it highlights that he is the creator. And that as the creator, he made us, not the other way around. We are male and female. And when God made man as the creator, he made us on the sixth day that we might worship him on the seventh. And why did he make us that we might live our lives in the worship of God as our sole purpose and function? 
The fact is, of course, that all creation groans waiting for the day of redemption. All of creation worships God just by their very existence. Psalm 19 bears that out. They don't argue about it. They don't question it. They simply do it by their very sheer existence. As you witness the sunrise and the sunset and the stars and the moon and everything else. It is only man that rebels against this. But as the creator who made us, he knows what we need. And he knows that left without this, we would be hopelessly lost and destitute of people. That we have a need to be in the very presence of the one who made us. But not only is he the creator, as important as that is, which applies and appeals to every creature made after his image, more to the point... He is your redeemer. He he rescued you. That first creation as God as creator who made male and female, which led to the fall and the banishment of Adam and Eve from the garden. In that place of perfect worship where they rebelled against him, God determined to save a people that they might worship him that they might be in his presence, that they might enjoy him, not only here on this earth in this picture of the Lord's, this picture of the new heavens and the new earth on the Lord's day, but for all of eternity. He has rescued you from that which ruined you. We come not merely because he's the creator, but because he is the redeemer who has saved us from our sin. The picture is given to us in the book of Exodus very clearly, actually, as the whole work of God freeing a people from Egypt is a picture of redemption. The journey from Egypt to Sinai, where they then what when they arrive? Worship the God of heaven. They hear from him as he speaks. They come to find out that. Not only is he the creator, not only is he their redeemer, he is also, as the psalm so clearly highlights for us, he is our, your shepherd too. And within the context of the psalm and within the context of public worship, God exalts himself as the creator. He shows forth himself to you as the redeemer. And he comforts you with the the knowledge and understanding that he will guide you and shepherd you through all of your days. This is one of the ways in which he does it. It's right here, right now, through the singing of his praises, through prayer, through the word read and proclaimed. The God of heaven who loves you with an eternal love is shepherding you. He's doing it through a weak instrument, undoubtedly, but he's doing it nonetheless. That you might not be like the people at Massa and Meribah who didn't hear and didn't listen and didn't recognize the voice of God and fell and died in the wilderness and lost it for all eternity. He comes here in this moment, in this time, to godly to, to gently and carefully lead you where you ought to go. But not only do we come because of who he is, as creator and redeemer, as shepherd, we come also heeding the very warning of God. Because the psalm ends kind of on a dreary note. It's like, they shall honor my rest. Doesn't sound like good news. Well, it's not. The writer of the Hebrews says that as much, that the good news came to them just as it came to us, but it didn't benefit them because it wasn't united by faith. They didn't believe what God was saying. They didn't heed the sermons that they heard. They didn't listen. And they were lost as a result The psalm is referencing the historical narrative that's found in Exodus, specifically that event of Exodus 17. God warns you this morning, this afternoon. I'm almost done. Be patient. He warns you to heed his voice. 
Listen. As he speaks and shepherds you and guides you through the proclamation of the word, as the word is read, as it's preached, you must listen. To not listen is a... The consequences are too terrible to contemplate. You must heed the voice of God as it's given in the sermons each Lord's Day. Listen to what he has to say. And so far as those things are faithful to the word of God, you must heed them. You must respond to them. You must listen to them. And you must obey what he says. Right here is one of the ways in which he shepherds the church. The setting's important. The issue of worship is important. You and I must pray for more joy. Families must be more conscious about the day of worship. We must come in here with thanksgiving on our hearts and our minds, and when they lack, we must repent of it. We must be determined to hear the voice of the living God, the good shepherd of the sheep who guides his people in the preaching of the word. We must not forsake it. We must fight for it each week. We must be here in the presence of a holy God who loves his people and guides them as a good shepherd through the means, not just of the sermon, but the means of all that you've done today in prayer and song and preaching and the sacraments. It's all for you, not for him. No, it's for you. Five brief suggestions. Refuse to allow it to be replaced each week. Don't take a job that caused you to miss it. Just don't. You honor the Lord, he'll honor you. Schedule your week in such a way that everything else surrounds it. Prepare for it. Fathers, refuse to allow your family to come unprepared each Lord's Day. Pray for it. Pray that the Lord will be pleased to give you more joy, thanksgiving, reverence as you enter his presence. Learn from it. Listen and sing the words of the hymns, the psalms. Listen to the word preached. Strive to bring forth the fruit of it in your lives. The psalm calls us to worship. The psalm calls us to enjoy the presence of God. This psalm teaches us that this is how your shepherd cares for your soul. He does it by giving to you the privilege, the joy, to enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, and to enjoy him here each Lord's Day. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you would help us now as we continue in our worship that we might do so in a way that would honor you. Forgive us for the way in which we fall short of this. We long for more joy, more thanksgiving, more gratitude, more reverence, more awe of your beauty. These things are all agreeable to your will, we know. We pray that you'd help us then. Give us more of your spirit, we ask for Christ's sake.